The book of Acts is a very, very important book for us as a Messianic community. It really is the story of the formation of the early Messianic community, and it is very pivotal to, uh, to what we do here at Beth Messiah. We offer it at MSI. Russ Baudet teaches it. I don't teach it. I, I love the book of Acts, but I've never taught it. But uh, I'm sure Russ does a fine job with it. As a matter of fact, I know he does a good job with it. But I just uh, am excited to talk about the book of Acts today and a passage from the book of Acts. But it's important to understand the beginning uh, when we come to the book of Acts that we have a early Jewish movement called the sect of the Nazarenes. You see, in the first century, we had mer- very, uh, several sects of Judaism. There wasn't like just Judaism and then you have Christianity, or you just have one Judaism. You have, as we might say, many Judaisms. We have the Sadducees. We have the Pharisees. We have the Essenes. Uh, we have the Zealots. Uh, if you read Josephus, he records these sects. He talks about how many different sects there were. So we have the Messianic movement arising, the sect of the Nazarenes, and they would have been part of the Jewish community. They weren't separate from the Jewish community. They were part of the Jewish community. And that is where we read in the book of Acts. This is where we read in the book of Acts about the formation of this community. So first and foremost, we don't want to think in the first century as you have Judaism, and then Yeshua comes, and then there's no more Judaism, and then there's Christianity, a whole new religion that starts, okay? Uh, That's something that takes place over a long course of history that I don't have time to go into today, but as we call it in scholarship, the parting of the ways, that's a long, long topic. But what we want to remember is in the book of Acts, we have this early group of Jewish believers going about spreading the word of the kingdom of God and the good news of the Messiah. So when we come to the book of Acts, uh, we have a group of early Jewish believers taking the advantage of every opportunity to share the message of Messiah. Now, in Acts chapter 1, We read, of course, we don't need to go there, but we read in Acts chapter 1 that we had the disciples asking Yeshua if he's going to restore the kingdom of God now. Because in their mind, the kingdom of God or the reign of God, as we might say, is something that is earthly. It is something where the Davidic king will reign there and the nations will go up and worship the Lord there and Israel will be at peace and Israel will be restored and the Davidic dynasty will be permanent And this is something that they had read about in the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, and this is something that they were looking for. So naturally, they're still looking for it. Even after Yeshua rises from the dead, they're asking him, are you going to restore the kingdom of God now? But Yeshua says, not now, it's not for you to know the time. What Yeshua has for them to do is work. He has work for them to do in spreading the good news of the message of the Messiah into the world around them. So it's with this background that we come to uh, Acts, and I'm going to talk about a chapter that's very important called Acts 17. So if you could turn there, that's going to be our chapter for today. Now, I want to give a little background about Paul, because he's going to be the main character here in Acts 17. We don't have a tremendous amount of information about why uh, Paul persecuted the early Messianic community. There's nothing in the writings anywhere, any of his writings that say A, B, C, D, and E, or 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. These are the six reasons why I persecuted the early Messianic community. Um, It's just not there. Paul says he definitely persecuted the community, but he doesn't list why. Now, 
I would venture to say that Paul had a fervency, a zeal, as he was persecuting this community, similar to what we read about in the Maccabean Revolt, as we read about during Hanukkah, when Judas Maccabees uh, led a revolt and took over the temple and rededicated to God. That kind of zeal that Judas Maccabees had for God and God's zeal, or for God himself in restoring who God was, was similar to probably the kind of zeal Paul had as he was persecuting the early Messianic community. He was zealous for God's honor. I would venture to say also that Paul may have persecuted the community for a few reasons. Uh, they may have, may have been one thing, the fact has to do with the Torah. Maybe he was upset with what they were doing with the Torah, talking about the Torah relationship to the Messiah, because Paul was zealous for the Torah, of course. That was one of his cardinal beliefs, as all Jewish sects were at that time. It may have been that Paul was not happy that they were proclaiming a God-cursed Messiah, a crucified Messiah. That's something that was offensive to Jewish people, that their Messiah was crucified on that execution stake, and that was something that was absolutely abhorrent. So maybe Paul was upset about that, that they're proclaiming this Messianic figure was really the Jewish Messiah, the God of Israel, who was persecuted and put up on this execution stake. Paul may have not been happy about that. Uh, Paul may have been upset that they were proclaiming a deified Messiah, because in Jewish thinking, that's a no-no as well. That's off limits. There's nothing about the Messiah that he's supposed to be divine, at least in most Jewish understanding, not everywhere, but mostly that was a no-no, okay? So Paul certainly had a lot of zeal in persecuting the early Messianic community. But we read in Acts 9, as we go on through Acts, that Paul came to faith in the Messiah, God turned him around, and he is one of the main leaders in the early Messianic movement in proclaiming the good news of Messiah and leading the mission. So we come to Acts 17. This is a very important part of uh, the book of Acts. But when I think of Paul, I think of three words I would define Paul's ministry. Conviction, calling, and compassion. Conviction, calling, and compassion. Paul was absolutely convicted that Yeshua was the Jewish Messiah, and the convictions, as we know, are rooted in our conscience. Convictions are not preferences. They're not things that can be swayed back and forth. Conviction is something that you know deep down is true, and you're not going to be swayed by anything else. And Paul was definitely convicted that Yeshua was the Lord. He was the Messiah and the Lord. Calling. Paul was definitely called out. He knew that he was accountable to Yeshua for what he did with this message of the good news of Messiah. Paul was certainly not defined by those around him. I mean, he, yes, he had the Jewish community and others around him, but he wasn't going to be defined what the Jewish community thought of him. He wasn't going to be defined by what others thought of him. He knew his direct, uh, the first person he was accountable to really was Yeshua. In the end, he would give an account to Yeshua for what he did with the message of the good news of Messiah. And of course, compassion. Paul had tremendous compassion in his heart, and that's what also compelled him to do what he did. He had received the Messiah's love in his heart, and that transformed him, and he wanted to pour that out into other people's lives. And that's a good lesson for us. If you don't receive from the Lord regularly, you can't give to others what you don't have, right? So we need to be receiving from the Lord on a regular basis so we can effectively minister in this world around us. Okay, something else about the book of Acts that is very important, as we see, is that they are taking a confrontational approach, right? This is a direct approach to the culture around them. 
there's not a lot of, you know, kind of, uh, hey, uh, let me live a certain way. Maybe people see what I have and what makes me tick, and they'll ask. Um, you know, not a whole lot of that in the book of Acts, not that that's not relevant, but they're really taking a direct approach. As we look through the book of Acts, we see in many cases, of course, they went into the synagogues, as we'll read about in Acts 17. Uh, they proclaimed the message in the open air. Uh, Paul preached on a ship in Acts 27, 21 to 26. He preached in a schoolroom setting. He preached in civil courts before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. Uh, of course, uh, Philip preached in a, a chariot with a eunuch. So they really weren't confined any one way. They took advantage of every opportunity to proclaim the good news of the Messiah. Okay? So this is where our background is as we come into Acts 17. So in Acts 17.1, we read here, it says, Now when they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So first and foremost, what we observe is that Paul is doing what he always did throughout the book of Acts, and along with his companions, is that they're going to the Jew first. Paul understood that Israel's calling was to be a light to the nations, that they were called to bring the scriptures in the world, and of course, through the seed of Abraham, the Messiah was called to come into the world to help Israel fulfill their calling to the nations. And Paul understood that the message, of course, was to the Jewish people first. He needed to take that message to Israel. And so it's no surprise in verse 2, Verse 1 and 2, he's going to the synagogue, he's going to the Jew first. And that, of course, is still for today. It's in the present tense, the message is still to the Jew first. So, for three Sabbaths, Paul reasons with them from the Scriptures. Now, you notice here he says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That word reason means to dispute, argue with, uh, talk to, sometimes debate, uh, in many cases, you know, as you share your faith with other people, they have questions. Sometimes you go back and forth, you answer a question, then they ask another question, then you go back and forth. Before you know it, an hour goes by, and you're like, wow, we've been talking about a lot of stuff here. But most of the time, we have to reason with people, just like Paul did here from the Scriptures. So there's not a lot of, uh, in the book of Acts, there's not a whole lot of personal testimony of how God changed lives. It was just more or less reasoning from the scriptures and talking about the resurrection as well. Some of your translations here in verse 3, as it says in mine, explaining, giving evidence that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying that Messiah, whom I proclaiming to you, is a Messiah, some of your translations say uh, uh, proving and giving evidence. Just depends on the translation. Mine says explaining, giving evidence. Now, we don't have any specific texts here that Paul lays out that the Messiah had to die and suffer and rise again from the dead, but we do know most likely it could be from Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. But all we know is that uh, Paul believed the entire plan of the redemptive plan of the Messiah was laid out in the Jewish scriptures. So Paul is explaining, giving evidence about the Messiah having to suffer and die and rise again from the dead. Verse 4, it says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Now, you notice that some of them believe, some of the Jewish people there believe, but also some of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women believe as well. You see, in the first century, if you were not Jewish, 
uh, like a lot of people were, you would be considered a idol worshiper or a pagan. Uh, we were outside the covenant. And sometimes Gentiles were called God-fearers. They would be the ones who uh, would be in the synagogue and they believed in the right God, the God of Israel. In this case, these are God-worshiping um, Gentiles who definitely were God-fearers. So Paul had an impact on them. He definitely, his message helped them to come to faith. They were already seeking God and they were close to the God of Israel. But there were Gentiles who didn't believe in the God of Israel. They were totally pagan. So then we also have some leading women believe as well. Now in verse 5, it says, The Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Now we see some opposition here. The Jewish people at that time were not happy with what Paul had done. And of course, the message had penetrated some hearts, especially the God-fearers as well. They were not happy because they wanted the God-fearers, obviously, to believe in the God of Israel. And they eventually could be potential converts because these God-fearers could uh, convert to Judaism. So they were not happy that Paul had had an impact on these God-fearers along with the Jews as well. So naturally, there was opposition, and it says they became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. We don't know a lot about Jason. We know that he probably housed Paul. He was uh, housing them. But as they came to the house to find Paul and his companions, they were gone. Their attempt to find them failed. And they did not find them in verse 6. And they did not find them and began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. In verse 7, And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So the opposition comes against Jason, and they bring them before the authorities, and obviously they're not happy that they are proclaiming another king other than Caesar. The reign of God is the central message in the Bible, and of course Yeshua is the one who inaugurates the reign of God. He is the king, and if you're going to be proclaiming that in that environment, that there is another king other than the emperor, that is a big deal. So they're going to use that to their advantage in the opposition there to say, how dare you preach another king than Jesus? And so that is... Uh, Definitely a hostile environment. It says in verse 8, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And then in verse 9, and when they received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. So the opposition came, and Paul and his companions were not phased by it. They went right on going to the next audience. So what we want to learn so far in Acts 17 is that when we, of course, take that message to people, when God calls us out to do that, which he does, there will be opposition, there will be misunderstanding, and we can expect that, okay? All right, in verse 10, it says here, And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So once again, Paul and his companions are going to the Jew first. They're now at Berea. That's another Jewish audience. And the, these uh, Bereans are a little different. They're more open-minded than the, the audience there at Thessalonica because it says here in verse 11 that they were noble-minded and they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. 
So Paul is fortunate that his audience is eager and they're seeking and they're reading the word and they're examining what Paul and his companions are saying. And it says in verse 12, many of them therefore believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So Paul and his companions have some success here with the Bereans. They examine the scriptures and they come to faith. But once again, we have some opposition with those from Thessalonica. As it says in verse 13, it says, When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So once again, they received the opposition from those from Thessalonica about what was happening at Berea. Now, it's quite interesting if you look at Acts 17, these two audiences that Paul's dealing with. You know, in the first century, many Jewish people, almost all Jewish people, believed in God, right? Uh, they all believed in the God of Israel, and Paul can open up the text and start with the Jewish scriptures to talk to them about the Messiah. And what a privilege that is. But you see, today, it's not that easy, because uh, in many cases, the Jewish people we encounter today don't necessarily believe in God and they don't necessarily read the scriptures. Now, I'm not going to try to stereotype, but I'm just saying from personal experience that we live in a little bit of a different world today and that we can't assume that all the Jewish people outside these four doors believe in the God of Israel and they're studying the Jewish scriptures all the time. So it was a uh, different time then in some respects, okay? We'll talk more about that as we go on here. Okay, in verse 14, immediately the brethren sent Paul to go out as far as C and, and Silas and Timothy remain there. So here we have some opposition, and then Paul's going to leave, and he's going to wait for uh, Silas and Timothy to come later, okay? And now as Paul is coming to Athens, it says in verse 15, it says, those who, who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to as soon as possible they departed. Now, some commentators here do not think that Paul was actually supposed to go to Athens. Some commentators think that this was something that, through the circumstances of what happened at Berea, Thessalonica, with the opposition, that Paul ended up going to Athens. It wasn't necessarily part of the original plan, but this is the way it went. And so, uh, just debated there, sometimes it's debated in commentaries and what commentators say about this issue. But one way or the other, Paul is now on his way to Athens, okay? So it says in verse 16 here, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was holding the city full of idols. So now we have that Paul is in Athens. Now we've gone from two mostly Jewish audiences to an entirely different audience that Paul is in Athens, the city of education, the city of learning. Athens was definitely the pinnacle of uh, you know, that environment was the pinnacle of learning and education, intellectualism and philosophy. And Paul has now found himself in a different environment. But once again, in verse 17, Paul is going to go in the synagogue as well. But as Paul is here, even if Paul's not supposed to be in Athens, and this is where God has him, Paul is definitely concerned because in verse 16, as he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come, his spirit is provoked within him, right? He's seen all these different 
uh, statues and uh, reflections and images of different gods. That's really what idolatry was at that time, seeing different images that conjures up idolatry in Paul's mind. And he's provoked, okay? He's provoked because he's a Jewish monotheist. He was raised his whole life to believe in one God. He knew the warnings about idolatry in Deuteronomy, about worshiping graven images and things that replace God, things that consume other people other than the God of Israel. And he is provoked within him. He can't take it. He's got to say something, right? Very similar to what we read in the prophets. The, 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 uh, the excitement and the zeal will come through Jeremiah or Ezekiel or somebody else. So this is provoking God, and this, has to, this message has to come out of their mouths, and Paul is provoked. So he sees these idols, and then it says in verse 17, it says he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Once again, he's reasoning with the synagogues, uh, in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those happen to be present. So here it is, whether Paul is to be there or not, God's going to use him in this environment here at Athens in the marketplace, or what we might say the agora, the assembly of people where people gather together, okay? Now, all of us most likely only come to Beth Messiah uh, probably two hours every Saturday or two and a half hours, maybe all day, maybe you go to the Torah study, and, or maybe we come during the week for Hebrew school or something, but... I would venture to say that most of our time in our lives is spent out there, right? We're at our jobs, we're out somewhere during the week doing something, and we have our own marketplaces. We have our own assembly uh, people all around us. We have our own circle of influences, people that God has put into our lives around us every day. And so we have to realize, of course, we have our own marketplace just as Paul did right here. But in this case, Paul is in a specific marketplace, and it is in Athens, and now he's surrounded by two groups of people called the Epicureans and the Stoics. It says in verse 18, and some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus, Yeshua and the resurrection. Now, these Epicureans are interesting. They were a, Epicureanism is a school of thought, and they did not believe that the gods were really involved in the world, okay? If there were any gods, they were distant. They weren't engaged in the world. They were sort of a little bit deistic. Um, not totally atheist, but more deistic in that they don't believe that God was really, or gods were plural, involved in the current course of history. And, and they also did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed once you die, you die, you're done. Okay, there's no resurrection of the dead. Um, this is it. This is all life is all there is, and you're supposed to seek out pleasure in this life. So this is Epicure the Epicureans, and then the Stoics, believed that uh, reason was the, the, there was this governing principle called reason, okay? That reason would, uh, was a governing principle of the universe, all right? This law of reason. And the Stoics did not believe that, uh, that this principle, governing principle of reason was really, um, let me see. Let's just say the Stoics had more of what we call a pantheistic view of God. They believed this principle of reason was in everything all around you. It was in the trees, the rocks, and nature. 
very similar to what people believe today may, as we say, may the force be with you, right? The force is everywhere. That's what the Stoics believe. There was this governing force that is everywhere, okay? More of like a pantheistic view of God. A lot of people like that out there today. So here are the Stoics and the Epicureans, and what do they say to Paul? Some of them say, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Idle babbler, that means seed picker. Paul's being called a seed picker. You get the picture of uh, some uh, birds picking seeds out of a gutter, right? Just some uh, birds pecking away, picking those seeds away. Uh, Not a very pleasant uh, title, but Paul is called an idle babbler, a seed picker. So what a compliment that is. Others say he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Yeshua and the resurrection. So they're interested. They'll hear what Paul has to say. He's saying something new. It's the marketplace of ideas. And so Paul gets a hearing here. And in verse 19, it says, they brought him before Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is and what you are proclaiming. So here Paul is brought before this council. It's not like a legal council where Paul is brought before to have a like legal trial or anything, but it is a significant group of people in this council that Paul is going to have this opportunity to speak. So think about Paul. In the back of his mind, he's got the Epicureans and he's got the Stoics here he's got to speak to, and he's Jewish. Paul is a Jewish monotheist. He understands what the Torah says about one God, just like all the sects of Judaism at that time. They believed in one God. They believed Torah was primary. They believed in the election of Israel, and they believed in the purpose of the land and the temple. So Paul's got all these things in his mind, he's got to address a completely different audience here, two different audiences. And it says in verse 20, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other telling or hearing something new. So here's Paul, got these, he's got these two audiences he's got to deal with. And in verse 22, what does Paul do? He stands in the midst of them and he says, Men of Athens, I observed that you were very religious in all aspects, all respects, for I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God, Agnosto Theo, what therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to life and breath all things and all things, and he made from one every nation and mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and exist as even some of our own poets have said, we also are his offspring. So what does Paul do? He's going to deal with the Epicureans who do not believe that God is involved in history. If there are any God or gods, they're far away, distant. And the Stoics, who believe God's in everything, right? This governing principles in all of nature and everything. Paul is going to start with establishing who God is. He establishes that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has created this world. And in verse 25 and 26, uh, he has established the appointed times and boundaries of habitation. 
He set the world up in a way so people might seek him out. Now notice there that they should, verse 27, it says that they should seek God. There's a big difference today between seeking God and testing God. How many people do you talk to who say, if God would just appear to me, I would believe. Well, I'm having my oatmeal in the morning. Why doesn't God just sit down in a chair and talk to me and appear to me? Why doesn't God write, a, a, write it in the sky, here I am? Why doesn't God uh, give me a sign that's so clear that I know he's real? That's testing God. That's not seeking God. Seeking God comes to God with a humble heart saying, I'm willing to follow you and I'm seeking you. I desire a relationship with you. Not an arrogant attitude, right? Yeshua said, blessed is he who are poor in spirit, not arrogant in spirit. So God has established these things and what God wants or what Paul wants his audience to know in verse 26 is that God is the God of history. He is involved in this world. He set the world up a certain way. He's not far off or distant. And furthermore, God is not the pantheistic God, as Paul would say, the Stoics. God is not in everything. He's not a force. He's a personal God that created the world, but he's still separate from creation, but he engages in creation, okay? So Paul is definitely using a a very Jewish understanding here, okay? And that reminds me, as Paul says here in verse 26, that God has appointed their times and boundaries of habitation, is that God knows where everybody is. He knows all the people in these neighborhoods. He knows everybody that lives over there. He knows our neighbors are, who are around us. He knows uh, the guy on the island where he is. He knows who people are in other countries. Uh, he knows who knows what about him. He knows who has had what knowledge of, how much knowledge they've had of him. God knows territorially, geographically everything, okay? So we don't have to worry about that. And in verse 28, it says here, for in him we live and move and exist as even some of our own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. It's interesting that what Paul does here is that he quotes their own poets, okay? He's trying to establish common ground with them. He's trying to show them, look, you call me an idle babbler, this seed picker. You assume I don't know you, and I don't know your writings, and I don't know your background, your education. Paul knew what they believed. He had a background in Greek thought. He had a background in their literature, so he goes ahead and he quotes their own poets and establishes common ground that, look what your, your own poets say. It says, in him we live and move and exist, as some of your poets have said, for we also are of his offspring. And in verse 29, being then the offspring of God, we ought to know that the divine nature is like gold or silver or gold, an image form, not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of thought of man. So Paul, of course, is establishing the God of Israel is not uh, like they believe. He's not to be formed in gold, silver, or stone. So Paul definitely took advantage of their own writings and his background to establish common ground. Now, when it comes to verse 30, remember what I said about the background here. These Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that when you die, you die. They believe the body, some of them even believe the body is now good. It's a prison of the soul. They believed in what we might say the immortality of the soul, but they don't necessarily believe in the resurrection of the body, right? Because that's a resurrection is, it's resurrection of the body. And so Paul says here in verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because 
He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Paul, once again, does not hold back, despite the fact they don't believe in the physical resurrection of the dead. Paul talks about Yeshua's resurrection, and he says here in verse 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance. Now, God has always revealed himself to the world primarily through two ways, through the gift of creation and through the gift of conscience, right? Through natural, what we call general revelation. And all cultures, all people groups know God exists through those two mediums. Even if they don't believe in the God of Israel or they worship some sort of God, they know that God exists through those two mediums. So people are held accountable for those things. But with the coming of the Messiah, when Yeshua came into the world, what this means is that because of more revelation, more revelation that God has brought into the world means more accountability to mankind, okay? So Paul is saying that you're not ignorant to you Greeks. God is not going to say that uh, I'm going to overlook your ignorance. We now know that God definitely exists, and we know who God is through the work, through the death and resurrection of Yeshua, the Messiah, and God's going to hold them accountable, okay? Now, it's interesting in verse 32, when, it, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some people sneered and others say, we shall hear you again concerning this. Like I said, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, so it's not surprising that they sneered at what Paul had said, like, oh, how could you preach this resurrection? We don't believe that. But it said, of course, uh, then it said some of them will hear them again concerning this. And it said towards the end we read that Paul went out from their midst and some of them did believe, right? Some did believe. It wasn't a total failure. So I'd like to uh, point out... Uh, a final uh, six, five or six items I just have reflected on Acts 17. When it comes to verse 16, when Paul talks about idolatry, and he confronts the idolatry in that culture. How do we handle that today? Do we really confront the idols in our own culture? What are some of the idols in our own culture? Well, uh, so many I can't even, I wouldn't have time because there'd be lists everywhere. But as I was meditating on this chapter and preparing this message, I thought about the fact that we need to confront the idols in our own lives, too, because we all have our own idols, whether they be uh, things that just consume us other than the Lord, things that, that just consume our thoughts, things that replace God, such as perhaps political idolatry. That's not a problem. Perhaps we put all our hopes and thoughts in the politics of the world to fix the problems. Yes, that's idolatry. I said it. Or perhaps we believe in... Uh, Perhaps we have technology addictions. Uh, perhaps we're consumed by technology. Perhaps technology is just consuming our time. And I've been convicted of that over the past year. And so perhaps some of us need to put those things away for a little bit and give the technology a break and give God some attention. Uh, other idols. Well, I, I think you all can think about your own idols, whatever they are. I've got my own. But the point is, though, that yes, we do need to speak out against the idols of our own culture, okay? We are called to do that. And of course, examine our own hearts to make sure we're not holding people accountable to things that we're doing ourselves. Second issue, people are held accountable for false beliefs. Yes, it matters what we believe in the world today. It is a smorgasbord out there of beliefs. I don't even want to tell you the things I've heard over the last 10 years being at a high estate. I know we have a couple people in here, a few in here that team up with us, what we do there, and you've heard some of the same things. 
And we could sit down, sit around the table and tell stories. But the point is, though, is that uh, there are a lot of different belief systems out there, but people are going to be held accountable for believing the wrong thing about Yeshua. So it is our job to get the right message to them so they can place their trust in the Messiah. Okay? Now, having said that, what do we do with the view that perhaps we can just live out our faith and not tell people directly about it? Maybe we can just live it out and people can just maybe say, what makes you tick and I want Yeshua? Well, let me say it's a both and. It's not an either or issue. We live out our faith according to the word, the best of God's grace and try to love people with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we also are able to speak forth the truth together. We can do those things together. It doesn't have to be an either or issue. Uh, thirdly, uh, we, na- we also realize in Acts 17 is that uh, Paul did both what we call both evangelism and apologetics. Evangelism is a simple proclamation of the message of Messiah, proclaiming the good news of the Messiah. Apologetics is giving reasons for what you believe and why you believe and answering objections. Most of our conversations will involve both things, okay? It doesn't have to be an either-or issue again, all right? And then, of course, finally, as I said before, um, we need to obviously be faithful with the opportunities God gives us and leaves, leave the results to God. We read at the end of Acts 17 here, it said only a few believed. Said a few believe. It says in verse 34, I should, say, I should say in verse 34, it says, Some men join them. Now, some may look at this and say, Some? I mean, why didn't Paul have 3,000, like in Acts 2 or Acts 3? Why didn't Paul get all of them to believe? That is absolutely out of Paul's hands. All Paul could do with his companions is be faithful with the opportunity and leave the results to the Lord. Okay? That is all we're called to do. We're called to be faithful and leave the results to God. Okay? That is what God calls us to do individually and congregationally. And then, as I would say, finally, once again, remember your own marketplace out there. When you're out during the week, who is around you? What opportunities do you have? Perhaps God has divine appointments around you every day, and your eyes aren't open and your ears are not hearing what he's saying. Be sensitive to where you are. Over the break, when I was doing some shopping with my family, I was in Walmart, or Target, I think it was Target, I have to tell you the name. But uh, I was looking at the book section out of uh, pure boredom because I was waiting for something. And naturally, I came across those books on heaven and, you know, all the books about 90 minutes in heaven, whatever. And I was sitting there looking at and, and this woman walked by me and she said, said, oh, I hope there's a heaven. And she, she walked by me, she looked at me and I was like, I was like, well, I guess this is the time. I guess here it is, Lord. I guess this is a divine appointment. I mean, I, I, I mean... Here I am, she's here, and she looks at me and says, I hope there's a heaven. What am I supposed to do? Well, okay, have a nice Christmas. See you later. So, no, I, it was obviously pretty clear that, uh, that that woman was there for a reason that day, so we had a nice little 10-minute chat. So the point is that we don't know where we are. Certain times there's going to be divine appointments that come into our path, so just be ready. So having said that, I also want to say one last thing, is that remember, as I said about Paul's audience, is that the Jewish community today uh, not everywhere, but a large majority, um, do not necessarily uh, believe, you know, we don't assume they believe in God, okay? I know a lot of my Messianic friends don't like to hear that. It's kind of painful, but it's the truth, okay? We, we've uh, seen it statistically, and I've seen it on a practical level, is in many cases with Jewish people, you have to establish who God is with them, okay? 
And so we will be doing that for the years to come. It's a challenge, but we can, we can do it, okay? And we need to be ready for the opportunities that come before us. And so it's exciting but challenging at the same time. So having said that, uh, why don't we go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that we can learn from Paul and his companions and how, God, the word of God was proclaimed then and what it means today. I pray, Lord God, today that if there's anybody here that has not come to know the Messiah, that you would give them the will to seek you out. And may they realize, just as Paul said today uh, in Acts 17, the times of ignorance are over. The Messiah has come. This is your message to humanity. I pray for anyone today that they do not know you, that they would receive you into their lives and they would come into relationship with you. They have the courage to trust what the Messiah has done for them through his death and resurrection. And may your spirit empower us as we go out of here. May we be ready and willing to share. Because as David Rudolph said when he was here, sharing is caring. And we pray this all in Yeshua's name. Amen.